Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Josiah is the last great king of Judah. As we saw last week, Josiah is the long-prophesied son of David come to heal and restore God's people. He repairs the temple. He recovers the book of the law. He purges both Judah and Israel of idolatrous worship. And he restores the feast of Passover. All of this reform, all of this restoration, all of this faithfulness, Yet 2 Kings 23, 26 says, Still Yahweh did not turn from the burning of his great wrath because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And Yahweh said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight as I have removed Israel. And I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, My name shall be there. Josiah is one of the greatest branches on the tree of David, but the root of Jesse is still rotten. The corruption has spread too deep. God will not relent from his plan to overthrow the kingdom of Judah, destroy Jerusalem, and break down the temple that is called by his name. So amid the peace and prosperity of Josiah's reign, God chooses to raise up a herald a herald of coming judgment, one who will continue to warn his people of what God has promised to do. His name is Jeremiah. He's from the city of Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. That's about three miles northeast of Jerusalem. It's one of the towns allotted to the priests of Israel. And Jeremiah is indeed a member of a priestly family, the line of Abiathar. But the line of Abiathar had been deposed from their priestly service for the sins of their ancestor Eli. You might remember his story from the book of 1 Samuel. What that means is that Jeremiah has all the knowledge and training of a priest. At the same time, he's an outsider to the current temple elite in Jerusalem. Now, Jeremiah prophesies in the days of King Josiah, but also in the days of Josiah's sons, Jehoiakim and Zedekiah, as we'll see in coming weeks. And then the book closes with the siege and destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 587 B.C. So place Jeremiah in your mind as the foremost prophet in the final days of the southern kingdom of Judah. His words and his story make up the largest book in your Bible. Chapter 36 of this book tells us that 20 years into Jeremiah's prophetic ministry, Yahweh tells him to collect all the sermons and poems and prophecies he's been speaking and write them on a scroll. Jeremiah dictates these words to a scribe named Baruch, who himself becomes an important character in the book as one of the few people that heeds Jeremiah's call. Baruch also includes stories, stories about Jeremiah's life and the things that happened to him. He groups them according to a kind of theme 
instead of putting them in chronological order, which is why when you're reading through the book of Jeremiah, it feels a little disjointed. It jumps around a little bit. But the resulting tapestry is a powerful portrait of the life and message of one of the greatest prophets in the history of Israel. And that portrait begins with the call of Jeremiah in chapter 1, verse 4, where Jeremiah tells us, Now the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now this verse is probably familiar to all of us for its frequent use in the pro-life movement. In its original context, it shows us God's complete sovereignty over the events of human history. Because even before Jeremiah is born, Yahweh has already determined to use Jeremiah as his voice, as his prophet. And note this intriguing bit. Jeremiah is appointed a prophet to the nation. Now, much of Jeremiah's prophecy will be directed to the kings and people of Judah, that's true, but God's not solely concerned with his chosen people. God intends to save all nations, to draw all peoples to himself. It's not just a New Testament thing. All along, God has had a mission to redeem all nations. And so, Jeremiah is called as a prophet to the nations, and indeed, we will see him speaking to many different nations at various points in this book. In verse 6, then, Jeremiah responds to the Lord's call, probably the same way most of us would. Then I said, Ah, Lord Yahweh, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. Who else in Scripture, when called to be God's messenger to the nations, said that he did not know how to speak? Do you remember? Exodus 4.10. But Moses said to Yahweh, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Jeremiah is being raised up as a new Moses. He has the same fears as Moses. He's being raised up to speak God's judgment to rebellious kings, just as Moses was. And just as he did with Moses, God promises that he will be with his chosen prophet to deliver him. Verse 7, But Yahweh said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares Yahweh. And we will see Yahweh delivering Jeremiah from various sticky situations throughout the rest of this book. Verse 9 then. Then Yahweh put out his hand and touched my mouth. This reminds us of the call to the prophet Isaiah some 75 years before when the seraphim took a burning coal from the altar and touched Isaiah's mouth. Both Isaiah and Jeremiah were men of unclean lips who dwelt in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Now, that doesn't mean they were a bunch of potty mouths. It means their worship was corrupted. It was a people who directed the liturgies and hymns of their worship to false gods. 
But God puts out his hand and he touches Jeremiah's mouth. Whatever God touches becomes his possession. It is made holy. So God is laying claim to Jeremiah's speech. Indeed, the verse continues, And Yahweh said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Jeremiah will not be speaking his own thoughts and opinions on the events of his day. He will not end his prophecies with a passive, I'm just saying. No, when Jeremiah speaks, he will say, thus says Yahweh. He will speak as God's representative to the kings and people of Judah, to the kings and people of the nations. And what will God's words in Jeremiah's mouth be used for? What will these words accomplish? Verse 10. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And I want to use these three pairs, these three phrases, as a sort of paradigm for the major goals of Jeremiah's ministry. Number one, to pluck up and to break down. Number two, to destroy and to overthrow. Number three, to build and to plant. So part of Jeremiah's work is destructive. His word will be uprooting and breaking down the idolatry in Judah. He will prophesy the destruction and overthrow of Judah and Jerusalem and the temple. But God says Jeremiah will also build and plant. He will speak words of, of restoration, words of redemption. He will give a hope for the future. To further illustrate the nature of Jeremiah's call, God gives him a visual aid. And I'm jumping to chapter 18 here. Jeremiah is kind of known for these object lessons, these enacted prophecies. And this is one of the most well-known. In chapter 18, verse 1, it says, The word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Can you picture that in your mind? This potter is working over his wheel, he's thrown his clay, he's spinning it, he's trying to shape the clay into a vessel, perhaps a cup. But something goes wrong. The clay does not yield to the potter's design. The vessel is ruined, the cup cannot be completed. This is no big problem for a skilled potter, is it? He's a skilled craftsman. He can just take that same lump of clay and spin it into a bowl or a plate or whatever he wants. So Jeremiah is standing there watching the potter do this, and that's when Yahweh speaks to him. Verse 5, Then the word of Yahweh came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done? declares Yahweh. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, those are the same words in Jeremiah's calling, 
And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, also words from Jeremiah's calling, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. Now, therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says Yahweh, behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. What's God saying to Jeremiah there with this image of the potter? Yahweh is the potter. Israel is the clay. God's plucking up and breaking down and destroying. God's building and planting. These are the actions of the potter God molding the clay of his people according to his good pleasure. Just as the potter can scrap his original plan and reshape the clay into a new vessel, so Yahweh can reshape his people. If they break covenant with him and worship false gods, he squeezes the ruined vessel back into formless clay, decreating it. If Israel repents and returns to trust him, he can mold and shape them into a beautiful new vessel for his glory. But the point is this, it's easy for a skilled potter to shape and reshape the clay as he wishes, isn't it? It is just as easy for Yahweh to mold and shape the destinies of nations and kingdoms. The mightiest empires of bronze and steel are like soft, moldable clay in the hands of the potter God. He is the true king. He is the true Lord. He is the true God. Going back then to chapter 1 of Jeremiah, we see that this molding work of the potter God will be accomplished through the prophetic words of his chosen vessel, Jeremiah. Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. I have set you over nations and kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Jeremiah is also a potter called to do the same work that the potter God does, shaping Israel's destiny, shaping world history according to God's design. How will Jeremiah accomplish this monumental task? What will he use to shift nations and kingdoms? Words. Simple words. With a few good visual aids and a little dramatic acting thrown in for good measure, as we will see, but all as a means of molding Judah and the nations to God's plan. That's absurd, you say. How can the words of one lonely prophet in one little country mold and shape whole empires as the potter shapes the clay? Because God says they will. Because God puts his words into Jeremiah's mouth. Those are God's words. And remember, it was God's word that created the world in the first place. And God's word can mold and shape and uh, reform the clay of this world once again in whatever way he pleases. So this is something that you need to understand about prophets. 
They reshape old worlds and they create new ones by their words. And they do this with their words because God hears them and acts according to their prayers. And because God speaks through them and gives his words to them. Their words are God's words. Jeremiah's words will call down destruction on the old world of Judah. But Jeremiah's words will also create a new world for Judah on the other side. That's what prophets do. Now, you kids know this. You sing it in your prophet song in Sunday school, don't you? These are the prophets. They speak and things change. New worlds are created, old ones rearranged. We see this in Jeremiah. The potter God uses Jeremiah's words to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And I think there may be fruit in seeing these words as three distinct actions, three unique goals of Jeremiah's ministry. So let's take up uh, the first one, pluck up and break down. What will Jeremiah be plucking up and breaking down by his prophetic word? It seems this refers to Jeremiah's addressing Judah's sin, addressing Judah's sin, Judah's idolatry and their injustice that has taken root like weeds. Her idolatry is literally set in stone. It's built up in the idols and altars of stone that her kings have failed to break down. So Jeremiah will pluck up and break down Judah's sin and idolatry. And Jeremiah is known for attacking idolatry in a specific way. He's not the only prophet to use this image, but it is characteristic of him. For Jeremiah, idolatry is adultery. Idolatry is adultery. For Jeremiah, Judah's violation of the first and second commandments also make them guilty of the seventh. Because Israel is the bride of Yahweh. They are bound to him by a covenant just like a husband and wife are bound by the marriage covenant. So that when Judah turns from Yahweh to worship other gods, it's like a bride turning from her husband to chase other lovers. We see Jeremiah plucking up and tearing down Judah's adulterous idolatry in chapter 3. There, Yahweh says to Jeremiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree? He's talking about the high places and the Asherah poles, sites of idolatrous worship. Yahweh continues, And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went, committing adultery with stone and tree. Again, he's speaking of idols here. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares Yahweh. Judah pretended to return to Yahweh, but their heart did not truly embrace him. So in the northern kingdom, they had already committed adultery against Yahweh with all their idols, and as a consequence, God divorced her. He allowed the Assyrians to come in and take her out of his presence. You would think Israel's sister Judah would see this and would repent. But no, Yahweh says, Judah has committed the same sins of adulterous idolatry. So Jeremiah preached this metaphor, 
idolatry as adultery. And it gives the cry against idolatry a much more personal and passionate tone, doesn't it? It helps to show Yahweh's intimate love for his people, not just the love of a king for subjects, but the love of a husband for a bride. And this helps us to see how deeply Israel's and Judah's idolatry hurts God. He's a spurned husband. He longs for his bride to return to him. She refuses and chases another. So we'll see Jeremiah preaching idolatry as adultery throughout this book. This is his prophetic task of plucking up and tearing down Judah's sin. Yahweh also gives him the task to destroy and to overthrow, to destroy and to overthrow. These words speak specifically of the prophecies of judgment that Jeremiah will be speaking. He will prophesy the literal destruction and overthrow of Judah and Jerusalem, which God will bring about because of his people's sin. We, we saw the potter's house. That's just one of many prophetic images in the book of Jeremiah. He's given another image in chapter 1 that has to do with this task to destroy and overthrow. Jeremiah 1, verse 13. The word of Yahweh came to me a second time, saying, What do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. What does this mean? Yahweh tells Jeremiah, Out of the north disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares Yahweh, and they shall come, and everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, against all its walls all around, and against all the cities of Judah. Now, as you read on in Jeremiah, you will discover that God's talking about the Babylonians here. They are the empire composed of the tribes and kingdoms of the north. Thus far in our study of kings, we've mostly been worried about the, the threat from the north that was the Assyrians. But in Jeremiah's day, Babylon had already conquered the Assyrians, and now they are the threat from the north. So this will be another major theme in the book of Jeremiah. Judgment's coming, like a boiling pot ready to pour out on the land of Judah. Judgment is coming. Babylon is the pot that is boiling over and pouring south. And he will be warning Judah about this eminent threat, but they will not listen to him. So Jeremiah is called to pluck up and break down idolatry and injustice of Judah. We said he often pictures this idolatry as adultery. Jeremiah is also called to destroy and to overthrow, to bring judgment on God's people. And he does this by prophesying the destruction that will come through the Babylonians. Now, both of these aspects of his calling are going to be very hard words for Judah to hear, and they will not receive them well. As you can imagine, these prophecies will not make Jeremiah popular with the kings and religious leaders of Judah and Jeremiah will face much persecution for God's word, as we will see. But there was a third work to which Jeremiah was called, wasn't there? He was also called to build and to plant. To build and to plant. And this aspect of Jeremiah's work largely comes in the form of prophecies for future hope. Judah cannot escape the writing on the wall. Idolatry must be crushed. Judgment must occur. Even so, there is hope for life on the other side. 
Yahweh does not always save his people from death, but he does promise resurrection. So in chapter 3, where Jeremiah gives Yahweh's searing rebuke of Israel's and Judah's adultery, he also gives a prophecy of hope, a portrait of what life will be like when daughter Israel and daughter Judah return from their exile. Jeremiah 3.14 Return, O faithless children, declares Yahweh, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart, like King David. Shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of Yahweh, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of Yahweh in Jerusalem. And they shall no more stubbornly follow their own heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel. And together, together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. You see the hope for the future. Though Israel and Judah will be exiled, God will bring them back to the land. And he will reunite the kingdoms that have now long been divided. He will give them a righteous king. And all the nations will flock to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh. Specifically, we see the work of building and planting in the famous promises of Jeremiah 31. God says, And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares Yahweh. Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares Yahweh. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, No, Yahweh, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. He speaks of a time when Israel and Judah will no longer rebel, when they shall embrace the covenant from the heart, when husband and bride shall be reunited, a time when all God's people will be forgiven and redeemed. These are words of hope for the future. And this is how Jeremiah will build and plant. Now it's true that very few in Jeremiah's day will pay heed or take comfort from these promises. But when Israel and Judah are in exile, God's people will begin to cling to these promises of Jeremiah and the other prophets in hope for the future. They will look with eager expectation for the coming of this day, just as we now look in hope for the coming of our king and our redemption. And they will still be looking for these promises 
when the greater Jeremiah comes on the scene 500 years later. So it's helpful for us to know Jeremiah, to study his prophecy. There will be plucking up and tearing down. There will be destruction and overthrow, but there will also be building and planting. And seeing how and why Jeremiah carries out this prophetic calling prepares us for the greater Jeremiah to come. Jesus Christ is our great prophet, priest, and king. But it is that prophetic role that dominates most of his earthly ministry as he travels through the land, both confronting and comforting God's people with God's word. Indeed, Jesus clearly understood that he was following in the ancient way of the great prophets of Israel. He saw himself as a new Jeremiah. Jesus came to pluck up and tear down. He attacked the idolatry of his day, which for Judah in Jesus' day was largely an idolatry of their heritage, of their tradition, and their temple. Jesus came to pluck up and tear down the same injustices in his day that Jeremiah had denounced in his. The injustices done to widows and the poor and the sojourner, the bribery, the murder, the corruption of the religious leaders. Jesus came to destroy and to overthrow. He too promised judgment on Judah and Jerusalem. He too promised a siege of the city and destruction of the temple that not one stone would be left upon another. And Jesus also came to speak words of future hope, to build and to plant. Where the earthly temple would be torn down, Jesus promised to build a spiritual temple in its place a temple built of living stones, living in him, the true meeting tent of God and man. Jesus planted seeds of hope. He promised that he himself would be planted in the heart of the earth, facing his own exile, and three days later would rise again, becoming in himself the new covenant, the new world in which his faithful people might dwell all their iniquities forgiven in him, that one day they too would return from their own exile death and be resurrected with him. Pluck up and break down, destroy and overthrow, build and plant. As it was with Jeremiah, as it was during the earthly ministry of our Lord, so it is in our own day. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, by the power of the word, read and preached and acted out, the potter God continues to mold and shape history. He continues to call us to repentance. He continues to promise us life on the other side of death. He molds and shapes the clay of creation toward his purposes to bring his bride back that we might dwell with him in love forever. Let us pray to him. Almighty God, we give you thanks for the way you call Jeremiah to speak your words to your people, words that still challenge us today, words that prepared your people for the coming of the greater prophet Jesus. Use these same words to prepare us for his coming, his coming to us now and at his return. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.